0: 15 seconds guidance is internal 10 9 ignition sequence start space nuts 5 4 3 2 1 2 3 4 5, five four, three,
1: two, one. space nuts
0: astronauts report it feels good
2: Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. He's got a very big business card too. Hi, Fred.
3: (laughs) How are you doing, Andrew? Good to see
2: you. (laughs) Good to see you too. I'm well. I hope you're well. I am, yeah. All fine. Good to know. It's a great way
3: to be, isn't it? It's better than the alternative. Yes. right.
2: (laughs) Now, I'm going to start off. We got an email the other day uh, from somebody who analyzes podcasts, and they uh, uh, have a, a, a website that rates them. We are number one in Sweden. In uh, astronomy podcast, I think there's only one astronomy podcast that's actually heard in Sweden. Uh, I think we're number one in the Seychelles Islands or the Cayman Islands or so, <laughs> somewhere yeah, like that.
3: Cayman, that's right. Yeah, I
2: mean, well, uh, and Ireland too. Ireland, Ireland. Ireland. hello, yeah. Ireland.
1: Hey.
2: It's very <laughs> exciting because uh, we we think about all the the, the big geographic areas that uh, where, where our numbers really stack up. Uh, the, the likes of Australia, the UK. Uh, the United States but um, you know I don't want to forget all those other countries that uh, that do listen to us and and a lot of expats or people who um, don't want to be expats but they've been forced to be due to unforeseen circumstances this year that are stuck overseas at the moment who listen to us so welcome to you now Fred we've got a bit to talk about we were going to dedicate this whole episode to uh, questions but something's happened this week and we've had a few people actually write into us to say can you please Please talk about the Arecibo Observatory because the news this week is that it will be decommissioned and demolished after a, a, an, an accident occurred there uh, recently. And it actually, it happened more than once. The issue that caused problems, and they decided too much trouble to fix, too expensive, and so it uh, at this stage is looking like it's going down the Gurgler, but there may be hope. Uh, we'll also answer questions about uh, how the Milky Way looks from the large Magellanic cloud, um, uh, heavy elements in the stars, the north magnetic pole, and power generation in space. Someone's come up with a really interesting idea on how we might be able to do that. So uh, can't wait to tackle those. But uh, let's uh, firstly look at the situ- situation with the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Uh, yes, yeah, some uh, very unfortunate circumstances have led to a, a pretty hard decision about its future, Fred.
3: Yes, indeed. So, um, I, I mean, you and I have spoken about, <clears throat> excuse me, about results from the Arecibo Telescope many, many times. Uh, what is it? It is a dish uh, in the natural landscape of Puerto mm. Rico. Uh, which uh, is basically that it's a it, it's a, a, a kind of sinkhole, a natural sinkhole, with um, this spherical dish built into it, made of metal sheets, um, 305 meters in diameter. So it's essentially a, a, a spherical t- uh, radio telescope mirror that just looks upwards, but you can steer it around effectively with. A uh, structure above it, which is what's called the receiver cabin. It's where all the receivers for the, you know, the radio waves that it's focusing. Uh, that cabin can move around, and if I remember rightly, it can look 20 degrees on either side of the, the zenith, the directly vertical region. By moving this cabin around, you you essentially. You're pointing the telescope. Um, An extraordinary structure, Uh, not young. It was opened back in 1963. So it's uh, an elderly facility. And, well, just we might talk a little bit about what it's done over the years. But uh, what's happened is there has been uh, really um, a, a series of events, starting with a hurricane, Hurricane Maria, back in 2017, that have Sort of successively damaged the structure. Uh, there were earthquakes in 2019 and earlier this year, but then uh, what's really set the cat among the pigeons uh, is uh, breaks in the ca- some of the cables that hold up the structure. Uh, it, it's a, you know it's a web of cables that. Hold both the dish and the uh, and the supporting structure, the 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 receiver cabin above it, which mm. by the way weighs nine hundred tons. Whoa. I was staggered at that. Yeah, yes. so this nine hundred tons sitting above the mirror. Um, the uh, the a uh, uh, cable broke back in August, and uh, that uh, caused engineers to look really seriously. So what happened was that cable broke, and some of the debris actually penetrated the the metal sheeting of the dish, so basically you've got a hole in the mirror uh, and whilst the you know considerations were being given about how to deal with this, um, this month actually earlier this month, a second cable broke, uh, and that basically has um, uh, you know to put it in I guess what you might call technical terms, it has threatened the structural integrity of the support structure for that receiver platform uh, and as well as doing further damage to the to the dish and so the decision that's been made is uh, one that is all about safety because the engineers have concluded that there is no way of making this telescope, uh, viable again in terms of its structural integrity, without risking human life. In other words, it's an H and S decision that you can't repair it safely, and that's the uh, always in you know any kind of engineering situation, the, the 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 top consideration. What's the risk to human life if it's too big? You can't do it, and that's the basically the conclusion that it's come to. So, uh, in fact, it is. Being closed, and uh, I think the the plan now is to try and demolish it safely, uh, so that it will be, uh, I, I guess, returned. That landscape will be returned to something like its natural, its natural situation. Who who actually owns the facility? So it's funded by uh, the National Science Foundation in. Uh, in, in in America, and actually owned by the National Science Foundation as well. Um, I think there are probably other smaller um, uh, funding uh, streams. Um, some of the programmes, like its Near Earth Object Detection Programme, that was, uh, for many years, that was operated by Cornell University. That stopped in 2011, in fact. Uh, and there there is um, actually a consortium, that is engaged to operate the facility, and that's led by the University of Central Florida. It's a little bit, Andrew, like the way um, the Anglo-Australian Telescope here in Australia, uh, which was operated by uh, the government department, which I still work for, Department of Industry, Science, Engineering, sorry, Energy and Resources. Um, That that department operated the telescope until 2018, but it's, it's now devolved to the university sector. So it's led, by the Australian National University, with 12 other universities, I think, uh, who are contributing to the funding. And I think it was a little bit like that with the Arecibo dish, led by the University of Central Florida. Uh, Really an extraordinary facility, though. You know, for for, for a a, a facility that is uh, getting on for 60 years old, that it has done the most marvellous science, as well as being a film star, uh, oh, golden yeah, eye. Uh, yeah, it was a it, is, uh, it was in there. It was
2: in contact.
3: I believe it was. That's With right. Jody Jodie yeah. Foster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, a, a, an icon of science, which um, we never thought we'd ever see the end of, but uh, yeah. na- nature has taken over. Uh, and just to, you know, um, finish up with some of the achievements that it's made. It's really got an extraordinary um, uh, history in terms of the discoveries that it's made. Uh, there's a very nice I mean, point everybody is always to Wikipedia. There's a very nice summary uh, on Wikipedia about the, the discoveries that the telescopes made. And, and in fact, um, you know, within a year after it started operating, uh, it discovered that uh, Mercury... Uh, revolves on its axis in 59 days, whereas until then, we thought it was 88 days. (laughs) So, you know, that's a startling discovery to have made at the start of uh, the career of an instrument. And then it goes on with uh, pulsars uh, and the discovery actually of um, the first binary pulsar. That was um, a Nobel Prize winning uh, discovery back in 1974. And the the list goes on. Uh, I think Basically, we've made it most famous, though, uh, and by we, I mean, I guess, the scientific community for its observations of asteroids. Mm-hmm. which are made by radar uh, so you you beam you know you ping a rad- a, a radio uh, pulse out to an asteroid and look at what comes back and because the telescope's so big you can uh, you can you can actually analyze the structure of the asteroid uh, so we've we've seen images of near earth asteroids which until then were just points of light in a in an optical telescope so that work has been um, extraordinary uh, and um, you know the list goes on: this detection of molecules, the, the whole rigmarole of what we expect from radio astronomers. But you probably uh, you will remember, I'm sure. Uh, well, you were just a lad then, but in 1974, I remember this: um, the Arecibo message was sent. This is uh, this was a coded message, uh, the, an attempt to communicate with any extraterrestrial intelligence, beamed towards a globular cluster called Messier 13, which is a cluster of stars. It's about 25,000 light years as the crow flies. And it was a a pattern of bits uh, which could only be you know, they could only be turned into an image one way. Uh, and this is a crude bit bitmap image that's got stick figures, a picture of the telescope, and really uh, very, very crude compared with, for example, the things that are on the Voyager probes. But that message is still on its way uh, to, um, uh, to Messier 13. So, you know, th- these are the kinds of things that have made this telescope very, very famous.
2: Yes, yes, of course you know what will happen. Somebody will be listening to their radio on one of the planets at Messier thirteen, and they'll just switch it off at the <laughs> yeah, ten, well, yeah, five yes. seconds before the message arrives. Yes, that's that's true. what'll happen. Um, it, it, is there any chance of saving it? Because I, I read uh, this morning that there is a petition being sent to the White House to try and urge them to um, to do something to save this telescope, or is it beyond redemption? <laughs>
3: Uh, look, that's a question that I, I can't really answer. Um, the decision has already been made to, mm. uh, to decommission it because of safety considerations. But um, it, it is—it's broken they... hearts, you know. Yeah, the, the, I'm the, sure it has. The, the okay, idea the, of closing it—the it. the blowback I've
2: read has been, been astounding. People love this yes. facility. Uh, yeah. Is it possible, or would it be just too expensive to decommission it? demolish it and then build a new one on, start, its, start on its again place yeah
3: <laughs> well i think what would um, mitigate against that is uh and you and i have spoken as well about this too that there is now a bigger telescope of a similar kind in china yeah um which was opened uh back in is four years ago a bit more than four years ago july 2016 it's called It's called FAST, and FAST tells you all you need to know. It's the 500-metre aperture spherical telescope. So it's a very similar machine to the Arecibo dish, but 200 metres bigger. Mm. Uh, And that means, you know, with telescopes, size is everything. So you've already got a situation where there is an effective replacement. Yes, it's not on American soil um, or You know, one of the protectorates of America, uh, as Puerto Rico is. It's it's. um, uh, Nevertheless, the scientific community is a very open one, and so you know, um, Western astronomers are at liberty to use the FAST telescope in China, and indeed, many of them are. The one thing that FAST doesn't have, Andrew, that Arecibo did is the ability to send radar signals out. They can't do a transmission uh, like you could with Arecibo. So it's very much a telescope that listens rather than pings with with radar. But you never know, that might be something that can be, uh, can be added on. It's uh, possible that that might be a modification that can be made. Yeah,
2: well, it is very sad news and it will be a, a terrible loss, but I, I I, I would think that those that are trying to save it are doing it for nostalgic reasons, probably more so than anything. But that's a good reason to try and save something in real terms. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it'll be a, a sad loss. But um, you know, t- time is never kind to anything, is it?
3: <laughs> Especially humans. <laughs> um, <laughs> indeed. You know, I, I mean, there are, there are there are there are other arguments just than nostalgia because the um, telescope. There's always been a draw card for tourism in Puerto Rico. Yes. So you've got, you know, there's an economic uh, aspect of it as well and puts funding mm. into the University of Central Florida and things of that sort. So, And as I've yeah, already mentioned, movies hiring it for for yeah, uh, scenes.
2: That's and right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a real pity. But, um, yes, there it is. Um, the At this stage, potential demise of the Arecibo Observatory has been yet. Yeah has been uh, uh, decided upon. Uh, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're here also
0: Space Nuts.
2: Thanks for joining us this is the Space Nuts uh, Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson and uh, don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop it's on our website spacenutspodcast.com I'm having a look at it now. Uh, they've got embroidered women's polo shirts. They've got the short-sleeve unisex T-shirts. Uh, you can put a sticker on the back of your computer if you want to or the bumper of your car or wherever you like over your child's mouth. Uh, it can go in <laughs> It can go anywhere. Uh, and there are so many more things. <laughs> he doesn't like that idea. Uh, there are so many more things in our merch shop. So uh, when you visit the SpaceNutsPodcast.com website, just click on the Shop tab and you'll find all sorts of things there. Of course, uh, there's also a book section. I don't know what's in that, but um, you, can, you could have a look and and see what you can find. Christmas is coming up and you know maybe someone in your family is extremely difficult to buy for. Well, here are some ideas. So T-shirts, polo shirts, mugs, caps, you name it. They're all at the Space Nuts shop. I never thought I'd see the day, Fred, when we had a Space Nuts shop, let alone a Space <laughs> Nuts podcast, but there it is. Now, uh, we've got some questions to tackle. We're going to try and dedicate um, much of the rest of the program to uh, questions, and our first question comes from Brian in Georgia. Now, um, before we do that, I'm going to um, upload the audio for the questions the way they used to do it in the early days of radio. See this? I'm going to put it over there and hit play. So <laughs> if this all falls over, you'll know why.
1: Hey, Andrew, hey, Fred. Uh, my name is Brian. I come from Warner Robins, Georgia, USA. Uh, I'm a big fan. I really appreciate everything you guys do. Uh, your podcasts have, have saved me my sanity on my long drives for work. Uh, I do a lot of traveling. Uh, but anyways, I had a I had a thought the other day. Uh, was looking at the large Magellanic and small Magellanic clouds that kind of orbit the Milky Way and. I got to thinking, um, you know, we can see these clouds from the southern hemisphere or these these dwarf galaxies, but what do you think that they see in their night sky looking towards the Milky Way? Like, would they, would the Milky Way, like, fill up their view? Like, how large do you think it would be in the sky of a planet in one of those galaxies? Like, I, I don't know, just kind of a thought experiment. I don't think I've ever seen anybody... Visualize this before and uh you know like you know what our world or or what our galaxy looks like from someplace else and and, i don't know just kind of an interesting thought i just wanted to see what you guys thoughts on that might be uh but anyways uh awesome podcast i appreciate you guys and uh enjoy the weather Uh, i it's getting warm over there for you so uh stay cool
2: all right, uh, thank you, Brian. Yes, uh, in in terms of uh, getting warm, yeah, we're headed for forty three this Sunday, forty three degrees Celsius. What's that? About a million in Fahrenheit? Uh, uh, it's a lot. Forty is one hundred. I think forty
3: is one hundred and six. Is that, right? yeah, well, go yeah.
2: Well yeah. that? Yeah. Well, we're going to go well past that. Well past <clears> that. Yeah. The the view of the Milky Way from the Magellanic Cloud district. <laughs> um, yeah. It, at this stage. We can only look back from as far as the Voyager probes have gone, which doesn't give you that view. <laughs> not quite. Not even close. <laughs> and, and so we can only go on on our knowledge of ourselves from within and create artists' impressions. But it's, it's not going to be all that far off the mark, I wouldn't think, with the, with the knowledge we have
3: that's exactly right. Uh I, in fact I haven't taken the trouble to look but I bet we could find simulations online of what the um, what our galaxy would look like from the magellanic clouds. Let's um just re- um, you know revisit what the magellanic clouds are. They're two neighboring uh, dwarf galaxies. Uh they're large dwarf galaxies but they're our closest uh, neighbors uh of any size in the local universe, the local group which is what we call our part of the universe. Um, the big one, the Large Magellanic Cloud, is 165,000 light years away, thereabouts. The small one is both slightly smaller and slightly further away, about 200,000 light years away. So so they look, um, you know, the smaller one looks smaller partly because it, because it is, but also because it's a bit further away. Uh, and they, they are relatively rich uh, dwarf galaxies. In In fact, the Large Cloud, when you look at it with um, really deep uh, imagery from Earth uh, you can see there's a kind of uh, there's a bar to it and just hints of possible spiral structure but uh, as, as Brian rightly says uh, they are kind of orbiting the Milky Way but also being demolished by the Milky Way they the tidal uh, effects of the Milky Way galaxy's gravitational attraction is pulling them to pieces so uh, they're not going to be permanent features. So now let's um, put our imaginations onto a planet uh, orbiting a star in, say, the Large Magellanic Cloud. What do we see? Well, yeah, you see the Milky Way. uh, And it will be relatively bright. It will be much brighter. Than we see the Magellanic, the Large Magellanic Cloud in our skies, and we see it from here in the southern hemisphere, of course, um, partly because the density of stars, certainly in the central region of the Milky Way galaxy, uh, is much, much greater than it is in the Large Magellanic Cloud. So the, there'll be this beautiful blob of uh, of, of stars. You will be able to see the bar of our galaxy, because we know that it does have a, a barred structure across the middle, and then the spiral arms. And But it won't be exactly face on. Um, mm. in, or, in order for us to be able to see it face on, the Large Magellanic Cloud would have to be at the pole of our galaxy, in other words, exactly at right angles to the galaxy, and it's not. Um, it, you and I can probably both imagine, uh, envisage what it looks like in the sky. Uh, the, the Milky Way is, uh, I, I, I guess it's about 40 degrees from the Large Magellanic Cloud. I'm just thinking aloud here. but something like that. So what you're going to see is our galaxy tilted at about forty degrees, so it will look like an ellipse rather than like a, a circle. Mm. Probably similar to the way the Andromeda Galaxy M31 looks to us, but much much brighter and covering a much bigger chunk of sky. It won't be the whole sky. Brian, you know, says, "What it, what is it going to look like in the skies of a planet on one of those Magellanic clouds or in one of those Magellanic clouds?" It will be not the whole sky, but it will be a large chunk of it. It will be the single most spectacular object uh, in the night sky of a planet there. It's a very nice thought to have. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, if I get time, I'll try and hunt out some simulations and see if we can uh, mention them next time. Yeah,
2: and we've talked about our view out into space uh, and I think it was me or someone asked the question as to whether or not it would, would be different if we were to jump over to Mars and and, and the answer was not much. Not much, yeah. that's right. It would be negligible. <laughs> you have to travel quite a long way yeah. to
3: get a different view in space. Yeah, yeah you do. And, yeah. um, well, you might remember uh, uh, it's a few months ago now, uh, the New Horizons spacecraft took some images of, uh, i forgotten which star it was, yeah, it was uh, uh, Alpha Centauri, mm. uh, and compared them with the view from Earth to get the effect of parallax. And there is just a tiny difference in their positions, yeah. uh, even though it's, what, 7 billion kilometres away or something like that. Yeah.
2: It's, the view it's doesn't quite change incredible much. to think about, isn't it, with uh, that sort of yeah. perspective? I mean, yeah. here in town you can drive from one end of the street <laughs> to the other and the view is completely different yeah. <laughs> in space. Doesn't don't work, work that way. do not work, work like work
3: that, that
2: way. No, that's right. Uh, Brian, thank you for your question. Now let's move on to our next question. This is from, uh, we're going to say Glenn, because um, we've we got a system that, that, that not only records your audio when you send in your questions, it actually um, transcribes it. But sometimes it, it calls people weird names. So it could be Glenn from Albion in Victoria.
0: Good morning, Andrew and Fred. Love the show. Keep up the good work. This is Glyn from Albion in Victoria. I have a question on stars. I know that they're made from gas clouds and it's mainly helium and hydrogen, but what happens to heavier elements when the star is made? I know with the Earth, all the heavy elements have gone into the core, but what happens in a star? Are they expelled straight away? Do they go straight to the core? Do they ignite? just a question. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Glynn. Yeah, uh, it is. It's
3: Glenn.
2: <laughs> Hi, Glenn. Uh Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Um Yeah, hell, heavy elements in the stars. It's a question that's way beyond my brain.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a bit beyond mine too. <laughs> but um, so uh, you have to think about what's going on in a star. And principally what's going on is hydrogen is being converted into helium uh but there are by nuclear processes there's a whole suite of different nuclear processes that generate uh these uh the the elements you know starting with uh, with um with helium um uh, eventually in normal stars you get to the heaviest of the elements which is iron um th- which is produced in relatively small quantities compared with the me- the, the, the main um you know, uh, burning that's going on—the main nuclear processes. Now, all this is is happening anyway in the core of the star because that's where the temperature is high enough for. Uh, the nuclear fusion to take place. And the internal structure of a star is quite complicated. So you've got the core where uh, these things are being produced, the elements are being produced, and then there are various convective zones of of mostly hydrogen again above that and and ending up with a photosphere, which is the surface that we can see with a star. Mm. So um, the the bottom line is that uh, those elements are already... Uh, in the core of the star, as they're being made, and and it's uh, you know the really heavy elements, the gold and platinum and things of that sort, they are only produced in very highly energetic situations. For example, a supernova or a neutron star collision. Uh, that's what generates those much heavier elements, uh, and they find their way into interstellar space and eventually find their way into planets. And yes, exactly as Glyn says, they, they, go, they go into the core, which is why our planet has a, a core of nickel and iron. It's a, you know, all the heavy stuff's gone to the middle. Uh, but in a star, uh, whilst the nuclear processes are taking place, they're in the core anyway, just because that's where it's happening. Um, with um, a star like our own, which will, Essentially, start shedding uh, its outer atmosphere as it ages uh, because the it runs out of hydrogen. So you get to a phase called helium burning, um, and that that starts a whole different set of nuclear processes. Um, I think uh, it's a really good question um, uh, because what the, the end product of of a star of the size of our own is a white dwarf, which is where the uh, elements are held apart only by the pressure of electrons. It's called electron degeneracy. And I assume most of the heavy elements that have been created uh, are still in the core, but some of them at least must go into the outer envelope that is spreading out to form what we call a planetary nebula, a glowing disk of gas. There will be heavier elements in there. So it'll be a bit of a mixture, really. It's a really great question Uh, and, um, you know, one that... Uh, I guess the the, the answer really is that you can't compare a star and a planet. With a planet, it's dead simple. Uh, They're differentiated, so all the heavy stuff goes to the middle because gravity is the main force that's going on. But with a star, you've got gravity competing against the outward pressure of nuclear fusion, and so the radiation pressure. So the situation's a little bit different. And it would be be, um, different from star to star
2: because there are different classes of stars. They all have different ways of acting and, and different ways of, of, of uh, reacting, I suppose.
3: Yes, indeed. That's right. Yeah. Although the, the, the overall structure of a, of a core and an envelope, a convective envelope, uh, and, you know, then the photosphere, they're the, um, I guess, the main constituents of most stars.
2: Mm. Okay, Glenn. Thanks for the question, and a very high quality microphone. May I say that uh, that came through beautifully? So it did. I don't know what you used, but uh, yeah, really, really good. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, thank you to Brian and Glenn for um, uh, providing those questions for uh, part two of the two hundred thirtieth episode of the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Uptley and Fred Watson. I don't know which side he's on. One of them. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment.
0: Space Nuts.
2: This is the Space Nuts podcast, episode 230, Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. And we're trying to cram in a few questions this week to catch up because we've got an avalanche of them the last couple of weeks and even more, as it turned out uh, yesterday. Uh, we're going to maybe do this for a few weeks to do a bit of catching up because you put the effort to send questions in as requested. It would be wrong of us not to try and knock a few over. Some of them might cover topics we've already covered, so we we may well not go there again. But We'll just see how it goes. Uh, in the meantime, um, don't forget if you want to support the Space Nuts podcast, you can do so through our website. Just click on the Support Space Nuts um, button, top right-hand corner, and that will open, um, uh, open links up to Patreon. We've got a lot of supporters through Patreon. Uh, Supercast as well is another option. It's similar to Patreon, but you can get package deals through Supercast, so you can get uh, two or three of um, uh, our Stablemate podcasts uh, for for a monthly price. You can even now through Patreon uh, buy 12 months for the price of 10 ahead of time. So uh, that's an option, or you can just make a one-off donation through PayPal. So there are plenty of uh, ways of supporting the Space Nuts podcast. But as I always tell you, it's optional. We're not expecting you to do it. It is totally up to you. Uh, We appreciate that you're listening, and and that's the most important thing. Now, Fred, let's move on to our uh, next question. This comes from Snow in New Zealand, and they do get plenty of snow down there from time to time.
4: Hi, Fred and Andrew. Been listening to your show now for a fair while. Absolutely love it. Look forward to it every week. My question is, is the North Magnetic Pole actually in Antarctica, not in the Arctic? I understand when you look at a compass and the needle points towards the north, I understand that it's pointing towards the north magnetic pole of the earth. If you do the same with a magnet and float a magnet with a north and a south pole marked on it, it points into the same direction as your compass does. But my reasoning is if light charges repel and dislike charges attract, that would only leave... The north magnetic, the true north magnetic pole is coming out of the Antarctica and not the Arctic to make the compass direction thing work properly. Please answer this. I've been thinking about this for a couple of years. Uh, love the show. Thanks, mate. This is Snow from New Zealand.
2: Thank you, Snow. Uh, you see what sort of things people start to think about in lockdown? <laughs> it's... Uh... It's, um, yeah, I, I would never even have contemplated a question like that. It's, uh, it's a very interesting one, uh, as most of our questions tend to be. But, uh, yeah, what, uh, is, he, is he on the money or is, is he got it no, all a,
3: flipped over? It's a great question. Um, and thinking about it, so if you have a compass, um, the, uh, the needle, if you think of a compass with a needle that's magnetised. Yeah, <laughs> which I used to make as a kid. Stick yeah. them in a cork yeah um it's a really good point so the uh the the, the, the bit that points north must be the south pole of the compass <laughs> i' need to you need to do some experiments on this yeah. i mean it's it's really it's a matter of um it, it is a matter of nomenclature uh and the magnetism of the earth is a complex and wondrous thing uh you know it, it's uh, as as you know the magnetic poles racing across the the arctic at the moment the north yeah, magnetic pole um but uh it's it, it is uh it's true enough that uh, a a needle that's pointing north uh must be the south pole of the compass needle uh and so you you've got the you, you know you've got the um a uh, the, the slight dichotomy there. <laughs> I hope I'm not talking rubbish here. I've never thought about this. Just like, uh, um, you know, uh, just 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 like um, uh, snow. Well, it's been it's been troubling snow. He's yeah, I know. About this it's troubling while. me as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, in in a sense, um, our, our whole business about magnetism is the fact that it is a bipolar phenomenon. In other words, there are two opposite. Opposite um, uh, effects. There's a there's what we call the north and south poles, uh, and and the, the the light poles repel, and unlike poles attract. So that's the bottom line, and. The same is true with electricity. Uh, You can have positive and negative electrical charge. So you've got the same sort of phenomenon. And so that's all part of uh, the electromagnetic force, which is um, something that's actually carried by photons. But where this re- gets really interesting uh, and, you know, rather than just being a, a question of nomenclature, which is really what we're talking about with these North and South Poles, uh, it gets really interesting in the state in the situation of gravity, because so far as we know, gravity is a monopolar thing. It, it uh, You only have one way uh, things attract each other by gravity so there isn't a negative gravitational pull something that um, that will react by being pushed away uh, gravity is the least well understood of all those fundamental forces we don't have a quantum theory of gravity so we don't know what gravitons might look like uh, uh, eventually it will come i think this is one of the most exciting branches of physics to try and figure out how gravity works but uh, if you sort of think about what we might learn about gravity supposing we did discover that um there were negative uh gravitational pulls then suddenly you've got a brilliant way of shooting things through the universe Yes, uh, because you um you you get something that uh that reacts negatively to a mass uh switch it on and away you go uh <laughs> battling through the bashing through the universe at, at high speed so mm. that that's um you know that's uh, drawing a long bow from snow's question but it's a it is a an interesting aspect of it uh and thank you for the question snow i never really thought about that <laughs> yeah uh,
2: i mean we we talked about the north magnetic pole being on the move i i, I um i think that last report it was in siberia wasn't it
3: <laughs> uh yeah it that's right and there are different versions of the pole um yeah. you know there's this um is it the geomagnetic pole is if you just interpret the uh, Earth as being a bar magnet, but then there's places where the the dip lines are vertical, where the magnetic field is going vertically down into the Earth, and that gives you, (coughs) excuse me, a different pole. Um, So uh, I think that might be the one that's racing around uh, up there in uh, Siberia, (laughs) getting out of control. Mm -hmm. But thanks for the question, Snow. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's a good, good to hear
2: one. a New Zealand accent on the show. Lovely. We've, yeah. We see so we've done all three now. we have done UK, Australia, New Zealand. <laughs> we've got the whole oh. set on oh, this we've week's programme. We've got
3: yes, yes, we do. But we don't we don't have Sweden yet. We've got listeners in Sweden and yep. in other European countries. We'll get to your questions when we can.
2: Indeed, we will. Uh, Now let's move on to our final question for this week. This one comes from Damien. I'm going to guess this will be an Australian accent. What do you think? Let's find out.
0: Hi, guys. I have a question about generating power in space. On Earth, in many places, we use thermal power plants. Why aren't we using them in space? A satellite's typical range of temperatures was found to be from minus 170 to 123 Celsius, for LEO satellites, while minus 250 to 300 degrees for different orbits. A spinning hourglass with refrigerant gas would be heated and cooled as it rotated around. Add a turbine into the middle of it and you have a power source. Add multiple hourglasses and control the speed of rotation to optimize the heating and cooling. I gather it depends on the radiant heat loss, as space is a good insulator, and the performance compared to solar. Regards, Damien.
2: Well, that's a that's a fascinating thought. Uh, power generation in space um, is
3: he onto something that would be feasible? <laughs> yeah, I think it would work. What um, what Damien suggested, I think it I think it would work. It is absolutely right that you've got this, you know, these huge temperature differences. Um, it, it uh, the thermal control of spacecraft is one of the biggest problems. How you keep them at a uniform temperature for their electronics to work and things of yeah. that sort. So um, the, the side facing the sun is is warming up very quickly, uh, while the other side is radiating out to space. Uh, it's just by radiant heat. Yeah. So the, the, there are large temperature differentials, and yeah, maybe you could. Do the kind of thing that Damien's suggesting, but I think the bottom line with this question is that, uh, and you know, people have obviously looked at this sort of thing very carefully, that it's much more efficient to have simply a solar panel that works on the photo, photovoltaic process uh, to generate the power directly and rule out the mechanical components. Yeah, um, well, no, no moving parts. No moving parts. That's right. Just electrons <laughs> moving around, uh, and th- uh, you know, for. Um, Solar cell technology is now at such a level that we're getting very high efficiencies, uh, both here on Earth, uh, here on Earth, and in space. And well, I, I know that my electricity
2: bill turned up last week. It was a dollar fifty. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I've got, I've got some good gear up on the roof. I can. You've tell.
3: got good gear on there, yeah. And you don't have spinning turbines. You've just got direct no. conversion from uh, of light uh, to to electricity. Mm. Yeah, great stuff. Well, a good question though, Damien, and I love the idea. Turbines are among my most favourite things, but sometimes yeah. they're not the most I efficient. I suppose it also <laughs> opens up
2: uh, the question of where power might come from into the future, because uh, yeah, okay, converting sun power into electricity is something we're doing really well now, and and if you've been around my district, you will have come across a myriad of solar farms. There are some massive solar farms in this part of the world uh, generating electricity enough to power a small town. You make enough of those. But the trouble with them is they are so massive uh, to generate en- enough electricity for, for 4,000 dwellings, for example. Um, it sort of starts to become a bit of a problem when you need to generate electricity for 4 million homes, for example. So you'd need a multitude of solar farms. So we can't rely on that totally, but there's also wind power and river flow power, um, hydroelectric power, if you like. Uh, there's, there's, There's all sorts of other ways, but who knows what might be an option into the future? Fusion, fusion power, I know that's you know that's very that's going to start a lot of debate because a lot of people are very much against nuclear power, particularly in this country uh but they're you know to to probably throw the first punch um <laughs> they're probably they're they're basing that on two or three incidents in the history of nuclear power generation in the world uh one of which was caused by a natural disaster the other two one was caused by an accident. And the other was a um, a small meltdown. But, you know, how many nuclear power stations are there in the world you never hear about because nothing ever goes wrong?
3: You know, just um, throwing it out there. Yeah. You know, when you look at the, um, since we're talking about this, we've got off topic a bit. But when you look at the risk, the risk uh, to human well being for different energy sources, the, the riskiest of all. In terms of potential loss of life, is actually hydroelectric, uh, is because it? if you if you get a dam bursting, then you can lose tens of thousands of people. Um, that, that's just you know figures from and, and that that has happened historically.
2: Yes, it uh, has. Yeah, and not long ago, I think one or two years ago, the dam in the United States was was splitting and uh, released a lot of water. It can it can happen. Yeah. Anyway. And um, over the course of time, it probably will. But I just, yeah, I just,
3: (laughs) his his thoughts steered me down that path. Yes, I can tell. Uh, Going up into space, though, uh, really the best option, certainly for the inner solar system, is solar power, It's uh, solar panels. And we see that even, um, I think, Juno, uh, the spacecraft that's in orbit around Jupiter, has the biggest solar panels ever launched into space because it's so far away, but it's still using the sun's energy to generate the electricity for the spacecraft. Once you get beyond that, though, you really need an independent source, which has been to date, it's been these RTGs, the radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Um, uh, and it's hard to get away from that. So uh, thinking about what you know, future explorers of the solar system might do when they get really to the depths of Uh, of space, it's really got to be something like a a nuclear power plant. Uh, Fusion power, is much safer than fission power uh, it doesn't exist yet uh, we've been trying to make a fusion generator for 50 years uh, there's a, a an establishment called ITER in southern france which is where uh, a huge experiment has been going on for nearly all that time at the european fusion reactor uh they've been within five years of making it work for about the last uh, five decades <laughs> uh, and eventually it will work eventually it will um, they, I think they
2: should watch back to the future and chuck in a couple of cans of Coke and a couple of banana skins. And she'll be right. I bet they haven't tried that. (laughs) No.
3: (laughs) Anyway, fusion power is the future, but it might still be the long-term future. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, um, it, it, it's going to be interesting,
2: whatever they do. But uh, they do have to solve the problem of uh, using fossil fuels going forward, and Quite so, <laughs> and the intensity that um, is required to create electricity through those systems, and even um, you know hydrogen, uh, which is in development, that that requires a lot of effort as well. A lot of energy needs to be expended to create the, the, the liquid hydrogen to to fuel cars, but they're doing, they're they're certainly looking into it, but uh, electricity seems to be the way to go at the moment when it comes to vehicle um, or the future of vehicles. Um, That brings us to the end. Thank you to Damien, Snow, Glenn, and Brian for their questions this week. We'll get some more questions knocked over next week. Uh, Don't forget, of course, if you do want to send in a question, it'll be now part of a backlog, but you're welcome to do so through our website. Just uh, go to spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA tab, and if you've got a device with a microphone attached uh, or built in, uh, that's all you need to do. You just press Start Recording and start talking. Tell us who you are, where you're from. Ask us your question, and away we go. And I'll send them all to uh, us, and we'll add them to the program. Well, as many as we can, anyway. Uh, So thanks again. And thanks for listening. And thank you, Fred, as always. It's a great pleasure. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too, Andrew. Take care, look after yourself and see you next week. <laughs> all right. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. We also thank Hugh in the production studio for uh, doing all the, um, the button pushing and blowing all the bells and ringing all the whistles. Or is it the other way around? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, and from me, <laughs> from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again for listening. We'll see you on the next edition.